Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Michael Suarez. I'm the executive director of Rare Book School. I'm delighted to be with you for this, our first inaugural Ken Rendell Lecture. Here in the Dome Room, the signature building of the University of Virginia. I'd like to begin by saying a few words about the man who has endowed very generously our lecture this evening. For more than 60 years, Ken Rendell has been the proprietor of an eponymous firm specializing in historical letters, documents, and manuscripts. Famous the world over for exposing such forgeries as the Hitler Diaries, Jack the Ripper's putative diary, and the Mormon forgeries, Ken has published and been interviewed extensively on these and many other topics related to collection development, World War II, Western Americana, forgeries, and manuscripts. Ken has a long and distinguished history with Rare Book School. He was a founding supporter when the school was at Columbia University. He served on the board of RBS at the University of Virginia from 2000 to 2009. And he has been a steadfast supporter of the school and its many educational initiatives over time. Now, Ken Rendell and his wife, Shirley McNerney, have generously endowed an annual lecture on the central importance of original manuscripts and rare books to fostering human understanding. Each year, the Kenneth W. Rendell Endowed Lecture at Rare Book School will focus on the connections that rare books and manuscript collecting provide with people, events, and cultures, our shared human history, and the intellectual thrill and emotional pleasures of collecting. This lecture series will, over time, spotlight the roles of collectors, librarians, and dealers, not only in preserving human history, but also in providing insights about our present commitments and future aspirations. We are happily indebted to Ken and Shirley for their vision and largesse. Our inaugural Rendell lecturer this evening is the distinguished collector and advocate for the world of learning, rare books, and libraries, Beverly Rogers. Beverly serves on the advisory boards of the Black Mountain Institute and the lead library at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Her passion for all things bookish has brought her opportunities to teach at UNLV, to foster writers through residency programs, to conduct public book talks, and to mount engaging exhibitions of her estimable collection. Beverly is chair of the Rogers Foundation, which provides college scholarships, 
recognizes outstanding educators and sponsors initiatives to help fund Nevada schools. The holder of an advanced degree in English literature, Beverly Rogers is an impassioned and insightful collector of the past who has generously dedicated her energies to building a better future for the library and archive. Let but a single example stand for all. At UNLV, she has created an endowment that will fund, inter alia, a full-time position, the Beverly Rogers Rare Books Curator, the first named position in the UNLV libraries. It has long been said that book collecting is a consuming private vice that conduces toward considerable public good. Please join me in welcoming a transformational leader whose commitment to collecting is making any number of bookish communities much the better for her presence. Ladies and gentlemen, I am honored to present to you our inaugural Rendell lecturer, Beverly Rogers. In 2007, I had the privilege to sit next to scholar and author Stephen Greenblatt at a dinner following a lecture at UNLV. At one point, I turned to him and said, would you give me a clue about what you're working on next? He smiled and said, sure. I am researching the greatest book collector in history who found a very long lost manuscript. The book collector was Poggio Bracciolini. The manuscript, De Rerum Natura, in English, On the Nature of Things, and Greenblatt's Tale of Discovery, the 2011 Pulitzer Prize winner, The Swerve. My collecting is rooted in stories like this. Not because I have any delusions about finding some long-buried texts that will change the world, but because old books tell stories that would be lost if not for the material artifact. When I met Dr. Greenblatt, I was a budding collector. I did not understand the significance nor the responsibility of building a library. I had no vision, no direction, no idea where this quest would take me. My adventure began with a fun airplane read called Used and Rare by Lawrence and Nancy Goldstone, a couple who got the bug after Nancy's hunt for a unique anniversary gift for her husband. Inspired, I flew into hot pursuit of nice copies, maybe first editions of John Steinbuck novels. He'd always been one of my favorites, and I thought he had cachet enough to be worth collecting. This was so much fun. But can any of you walk into a bookstore, look for one thing, turn around and walk out? 
The same thing happens when you start haunting rare bookstores, swap meets, antique stores, as, when, as what happens when you go browsing for a good read. Shiny objects attract your attention. You fall into rabbit holes, and you find books you didn't know you had to read. It's from Mark Wessel and Michael Lieberman, former booksellers in Seattle, that I learned of a distinct genre called books about books. The store was in Pioneer Square, shoulder to shoulder with a variety of other book dealers and mingled with antique stores, rug purveyors, and other niche retailers. They didn't mind if I had a cup of coffee. They didn't mind if I sat on the floor for a couple of hours. They opened all their locked cabinets. They talked to me. They taught me. Books about books means exactly what it says. They are about the material object. Content ranges from printing history to anecdotal bookseller accounts and book collector travels to bibliographical minutia. If you're in this room tonight, you should run out tomorrow and buy a book about books. They're fun, they're enlightening, and they can be gripping. I found a spellbinding title at Wessel and Lieberman, An Inquiry into the Nature of Certain 19th Century Pamphlets. As happens, it is gripping. It's the real-life, tongue-in-cheek, told tale of Thomas J. Wise, the British bibliographer, 19th century answer man, um, collector himself, who bilked the collecting market with forgeries for a good 20 years. Wise created and propagated fake first editions of uh, pamphlets of poems, essays, and speeches by more than 20 popular Victorian authors. I did and still do collect everything by, for, and about him, including forgeries. He's a fascinating study, but I'm glossing over him today because he is a whole subject unto himself. He did, however, provide my entree into Victorian fiction. Victorian fiction is big. It starts in 1837, continues through 1901. There's a lot of it. <laughs> Victorian scholar John Sutherland calculates that if the Guinness World Record holder, who reads at 25,000 words a minute, would do nothing else but read Victorian fiction um, for 40 hours a week, he could cover it in five years. So I decided I needed a model if this was where I was going to go. I found a catalog from a 1947 exhibition assembled by the notable book, bookman and author of ABC for Book Collectors, John Carter. I spent the next several years building a collection that represents a cross-section of literature as it was originally issued and read. Weekly periodicals, monthly parts, three-volume editions, and cheap literary series and reprints. The collection further illuminates how novels were bound and marketed from unillustrated editions designed to be borrowed from libraries, what I lovingly refer to as my ugly books, to the colorful pictorial covers of yellowbacks sold at the railway stations, to the ornate bindings and typography of the arts and crafts period. Carter's catalog was a terrific guide, but I expanded on it. 
More changes took place in publishing during the first third of the 19th century than had occurred in the previous 350 years since Gutenberg's Bible. Fiction might present, be presented to the public in any of the formats I mentioned. Weekly periodicals refer to magazines. You subscribe to the magazine and your novel comes out chapter by chapter each week. Or readers subscribe to books in parts, whereby chapters were mailed directly, 20 chapters over 19 months. I'm going to repeat that. 19 months to read a novel. Dickens popularized this approach in 1836 with his first success, the posthumous papers of the Pickwick Club. Alternatively, publishers demanded the author write to a certain length in order to provide enough matter to fill three volumes. Those are called three-deckers and are the editions that went to circulating libraries. Sometimes novels would come out in more than one format almost simultaneously. The libraries held sway over the publishers because they were the largest purchasers and the publishers controlled the way in which the novels would debut because they knew best how to sell them. Fiction that sold well would later be reprinted in a single volume by the same publisher or reprinted by another. I arrange my books to converse with one another. All kinds of evidence exists in prefaces or through histories that authors of the period were at least familiar, if not downright chummy, with one another. Allow me to walk you through a few close encounters in my library. Put on your pretend hat here. Charles Dickens and Wilkie Collins hang out in one case. Friends and collaborators, the two published short stories together, and Collins wrote for both Dickens magazines, Household Words, and All the Year Round. Referring to Collins, Dickens once told his business partner, I have told him to have no fear of failure, for if he should break down, I would go on with his story so that nobody should be the wiser. Dickens made his mark literally on everyone who worked, who wrote for him. Per Mr. Sutherland, he is the only novelist of stature in the period whose name appears on the contracts of other novelists of statures. But he also gave uh, first chances to, to a lot of authors. And not only did he write and sell and edit, he traveled and gave readings and talks, and he even did some amateur acting. Open on the shelf here is a manuscript by Wilkie Collins for a play called The Frozen Deep. Those are his stage directions scribbled all over the play. And see this poster on the wall advertising the play? The actors include Dickens and his family. Also in the cabinet, you'll notice the 1859 edition of A Tale of Two Cities and two sets of Dickens' travelogue, American Notes. The preface of A Tale of Two Cities announces, it has been one of my hopes to add something to the popular picturesque means of understanding that terrible time though no one can hope to add anything to the philosophy of Mr. Carlyle's wonderful book. That tells us that Dickens used Thomas Carlyle's History of the French Revolution as a source. Here, in this book of American Notes, we see Thomas Carlyle's book plate, plus an inscription that states Thomas Carlyle from Charles Dickens, 19th October, 19, 1842. 
Also, in his chapter of American Notes about Boston, he comments, I found that transcendentalists are followers of my friend, Mr. Carlyle. That means they were acquainted at least 17 years before Dickens wrote that Tale of Two Cities preface. Definitely chummy. The second inscribed copy of American Notes is signed suspiciously, I first thought, with the same brown-toned pen and on the same date. This one to Richard Dana from his friend Charles Dickens. That's Richard Henry Dana Jr. of uh, two years before the mast fame. And interesting is that Dana was a maritime lawyer who, after his two-year sale, made a career of defending the rights of merchant seamen and advocating for the downtrodden in the industrial workplace. Doesn't that sound like a Dickens novel? <laughs> um, I kind of have the urge to go on a hunt for every October 19th inscribed copy of American Notes. This was the day after publication, and it was at an American dinner in Dickens' honor, um, where he was signing these copies to his friends and passing them out. They obviously hadn't read it yet. The book is an account and commentary on his travels in the US the year before, where he discusses the gross sanitation conditions in American cities, our disgusting spitting habits, and stubborn allegiance to slaveholding. It was extremely unpopular in Britain and in the US, and perhaps he had some prescience, hence the gifts to his friends. These Dickens works are known as association copies, copies that establish a connection between the author and someone in his or her orbit. Other authors, publishers, critics, friends, grandmother, Sometimes the link is a familiar one. Sometimes the association is uncovered only by an inscription or a note. You get double the pleasure with books that are association copies or copies that offer some proof of their provenance, their history of ownership. The inscription signifies a relationship, yes. In addition, a fixed declaration like a book, print, book plate or a name written inside reveals something about the person on the receiving end as well. George Eliot shares, no, shares space with no one in my library unless a very close tie exists. Her cabinet includes a first edition of John Donne's collected poems, 1633, in original cap. The book begs to be touched. You know that dark, muddy shade of brown worn and stretched in some areas, scarred in others. This copy first belonged to a chaplain. From him it passed to William Smith, a member of Parliament, and then to Smith's great-granddaughter, Barbara Lee Smith, later Madame Bodichon. Bodichon was an artist, suffragette, and pioneer of education for women. All manner of literati attended her salons, most notably her friend, George Eliot. The Dunn poems offered Eliot solace when she visited, as on the opening blank leaf, in her characteristic hand, she listed her 10 favorite poems. For various reasons, not just female writers, but all authors often took up pen names. Follow me closely for a couple minutes here. In 1853, a young woman 
submitted some poems to Dickens Magazine Household Words under the name of Miss Mary Berwick. He liked them and printed them without ever meeting her. Soon after, he was dining one night with a poet acquaintance named, uh, his name was Barry Cornwall. He happened to bring along his latest periodical and was bragging to Barry about this great new poet he had discovered. Some weeks later, he learned that Miss Berwick's real name was Adelaide Proctor, and the man he thought was Cornwall was Brian Waller Proctor, her father. <laughs> Adelaide matured to become another feminist trailblazer, co-founding the Society for the Promotion of Employment for Women. She held the honor of being known as Queen Victoria's favorite poet. In 1861, she published the Victoria Regia, a volume of original prose and poetry. My copy is inscribed, Mrs. Webb Watson, with the kind and grateful regards of Florence Nightingale, December 1865. I have no idea who Mrs. Webb Watson is. And guess where Florence Nightingale comes in? Were you following? She's Barbara Bodichon's first cousin. Connections. Adelaide died at age 39. Another of her anthologies, Legends and Lyrics, stands next to those John Donne poems. It's a new edition published after her death with an introduction that Dickens wrote at the bequest of her parents. And this particular copy also bears Dickens' book plate, a sentimental association, for sure. We've talked about names familiar in the English literary canon, but there's a whole world of what I like to call obscure women novelists out there just waiting to be discovered. And the fun part for any of you considering uncommon areas to collect is that there are lots of them and they are for the most part very affordable. Imagine for a moment George Eliot and Virginia Woolf having a cup of tea in your parlor Eliot quotes from her 1856 essay called Silly Novels by Lady Novelists. Silly novels by lady novelists, she says, are a genus with many species, determined by the particular quality of silliness that predominates in them, the frothy, the prosy, the pious, or the pedantic. But it is a mixture of all of these, a composite order of feminine fatuity that produces the largest class of such novels, which we shall distinguish as the mind and millinery species. From across your living room, Wolf counters with a few words from her 20th century perspective, a room of one's own. Hundreds of women began as the 18th century drew on to add to their pin money, or to come to the rescue of their families by making translations, or writing any number of the bad novels which have ceased to be recorded. Thus, towards the end of the 18th century, a change came about, which if I were rewriting history, should describe more fully and think of greater importance then the Crusades or the Wars of the Roses, the middle-class woman began to write. Without those forerunners, Jane Austen, 
the Brontes, and you, Ms. Elliot, could no more have written than Shakespeare could have written without Marlowe. Or, as Rebecca Romney in the romance novel in English observes, while Wollstonecraft's contributions to feminist thought are enormous, the presence of similar strands reminds us that major figures do not work in isolation, but are surrounded by multifaceted contexts, influences, conversations, and collaborations. You see, those silly women were supporting themselves, and often a family. They were buying homes, investing. Scores of women in Britain and the US, some under their own names, some under gender neutral or male pseudonyms, spent their lives penning novels. They were prolific. They wrote about social ills and small town mindsets. They wrote about heroes and heroines and scoundrels. They wrote about love and lust and loss. Many were married to alcoholics, gamblers, or abusers. Their children died of disease. They held deep religious beliefs. They had affairs. Of all female novelists, the vast majority recorded no other activity than being a wife or a spinster. And spinster was the most productive single category of author with an average lifetime output of 24 titles. One of my favorites is Mary Elizabeth Braddon, recognized as the founder of sensation fiction. She wrote 75 novels. Braddon reworked some elements of Gothic and crime literature to reveal shocking, often criminal behavior. Her novels suggested that secrets like bigamy, adultery, insanity, blackmail, could exist in respectable middle and upper class homes. Braddon began writing stories at age eight after her mother left her philandering father. By age 21, she was writing for magazines to help to support herself and her mother. She then worked on the stage for a couple of years as a character actor. In 1860, she met John Maxwell, a book and magazine publisher, and started providing stories for his magazines. Her first big success was Lady Audley's Secret, which came out in serial parts in 1862, the same year she had her first child by Maxwell. Maxwell already had five children and a wife whom he had assigned to a lunatic asylum. When his wife finally died, Braddon and Maxwell married and had six more children happily ever after, a clear example of the question, does art imitate life or life art? Ah, uh, yes. While George Eliot writes scathingly, calling out lady novelists for their driveling dialogue and equally driveling narrative, we can be pretty sure Braddon was laughing all the way to the bank. <laughs> uh, when Lady Audley's Secret was republished, in three volumes by another publisher, she and Maxwell were set for life, and the new publisher did so well that he built a villa on the profits and called it Audley Lodge. My copy belonged to the Landovery Book Society, where members rented books. 
pasted inside is the slip with the rules of the society on one side of the page and the borrower's names on the other. Um, Braddon, by the way, dedicated Lady Audley's Secret to author Sir Edward Bowler-Lytton in grateful acknowledgement of literary advice most generously given to the author. Do you know what Edward Bulwer-Linton is famous for? It was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> Connections and co coincidences run rampant in the Victorian collecting world. I imagine these kinds of links can be found throughout any historical period, but my library is just overflowing. I have one book I bought years ago because John Sutherland said the author Amanda Ross took the prize for worst Victorian novelist. The title is Irene Itisley. I've read some. It, it's just awful. <laughs> I've also gotten a kick out of telling people that I own the worst novel <laughs> of the period. I've read a couple of places that other writers, Mark Twain for one, would hold contests to see how far they could read without laughing out loud. But it's okay, because Roz claimed the book was successful enough to buy her a villa, which she named Itisley, of course. My copy's inscribed, but I never really paid attention to whom until I started collecting from the arts and crafts period of the 1890s. The inscription reads, my dear sir, being from home was occasion of delay. Sincerely, Amanda Ross, author. Um, and then written at the bottom of the page, it has Sir Philip Byrne-Jones. Philip was a prolific illustrator and, um, and was, a, was pretty popular in his day, but he didn't make it quite as big as his father, who was Edward Byrne-Jones. If you're familiar with the Kelmscott Chaucer, Edward Byrne-Jones made the magnificent Kelmscott Chaucer magnificent. <laughs> There's a woman named Adelaide Sartoris, another Adelaide, a Victorian opera singer of some note and later author, published a novel serialized in the popular Cornhill magazine called A Week in a French Country House. It later came out in a single volume I have a copy, not at all for its own sake, though it's purportedly interesting and humorous. The one-time owner of the copy on my bookshelf didn't use a book plate and couldn't have known the author. She simply wrote her name, Virginia Woolf. Sometimes that's enough of a connection. For a connection that good, I'll fall off the Victorian wagon. A 1678 first edition of Afra Bain's Sir Patient Fancy, a comedy, keeps company with my Victorian friends. She's been rebound in 19th century half vellum with marbled paper over boards. Her interior is in fine condition. Bain is the first English woman to earn a living, earn a living solely by writing. She was nearly the world's first feminist. She was sassy, and she was bold, and most likely the only room of her own she ever had was her prison cell in debtor's prison. 
I would bet that Eliot and the lot of Victorian women authors would smile to see Bain sitting across the shelf from them. Mrs. Bain was a middle-class woman, writes Wolfe, a woman forced by the death of her husband and some unfortunate adventures of her own to make her living by her wits. All women together ought to lay, let flowers fall upon the tomb of Afra Bain, for it was she who earned them the right to speak their minds. Yes, even those lady novelists with their silly novels, forerunners to the giants. Of all the ancient masterpieces, writes Greenblatt, this poem is one that should certainly have disappeared. It had been copied by hand for centuries, then lay dormant for more than a thousand years. On the nature of things, floated in philosophical circles without an audit of its provenance for another 500 plus years before Stephen Greenblatt, as a college student, rummaging through a cheap paperback book barrel, picked it out. He saw how precarious the survival of a dangerous idea. More than that, he recognized the boldness and determination of the man who felt it his calling to reanimate the work of the great thinkers by salvaging what they wrote. As Poggio Bracciolini resurrected the manuscript of Titus Luc Lucretius Carus, so too did Stephen Greenblatt breathe life into the tale of this extraordinary book collector. That is a story that would have been lost had the material artifact not existed. Before I finish and take questions, I'm going to take a drink, forgive me. And I want to take a minute to thank UVA Rare Book School, everyone involved, all of you for coming, for this phenomenal opportunity and most importantly, I want to thank Ken Rendell, the collector extraordinaire, without whom thousands of manuscripts and documents wouldn't be around to tell their stories. On the morning of September 13th, 2021, I perched on the edge of a chair at my kitchen table with two laptops in front of me. On one ran the Christie's New York Live Auction of the exceptional liter literature collection of Theodore Baum. On the other, I had a Zoom connection with my bookseller friend Ed Lake, who was in London on the phone with New York, bidding for me. The trophy I wanted was the 1814 first edition of Jane Austen's Mansfield Park, three volumes in original boards. Austin is slightly outside the Victorian window. So what? <laughs> this copy has a remarkable documented readership and ownership history. She is a one of a kind with the names of 18 borrowers who had belonged to a reading circle recorded on the front and back covers. She has graced the bookshelves of Mrs. Nicholas, the first owner, plus the 17 who borrowed after her. She belonged to the once British Sheriff of Derbyshire. 
She resided in the home of the Academy Award-winning composer, Jerome Kern, then the famed type designer, George Abrams, and finally lived in the library of Theodore Baum, a pioneer in the cable television industry. She now adorns my living room. I believe that what was originally printed in a run of 1,250 copies bound in cheap, ugly boards with paper spines meant for the pleasure of multiple readers. This copy of Austin's third book that only exists by the grace of accidental stewards called book collectors embodies the essence of what I talk about today. On some small scale, I get to participate in the same tradition with those who rescue, treasure, and perpetuate the stories that keep those old books alive. And you can too. Thank you. I saw you taking notes. I did take notes. <laughs> Is that, I thought that meant a question. Go ahead. How was done with collecting sensation fiction? Well, I've actually just started this. The obscure women authors got me into it. It was, it was really um, not being as observant as I could have been over a long period of time, and sometimes trying to force myself, which is really difficult, to stay within a focus. Um, if I was just going through a, a couple of different catalogs and noticing women novelists I'd never heard of, <laughs> and, um, and kind of reading, you know, then I'd take my little John Sutherland Bible, I call it, and look up a lot of different people, start you know fishing around and finding out some more information, and then I just thought, I think this is a kind of a cool niche, so I started going a little bit in that direction. So it's a relatively new thing, and then I just started reading about the sensation fiction, and um, I think Laura's the sensation fiction expert over here, but uh, yeah. But I probably have about, um, I don't know, maybe maybe. 50 or 60 uh, books so far. They're really inexpensive because nobody's really focusing on them so much, except for really a few that are kind of hot names in the book collecting world that a lot of people might recognize, but general readers don't recognize the names. So, yeah, and, it, and the interesting thing too is the covers of them, because generally like, a you know, the, the, the thing with collecting is the closer you can get to the original publishing condition with no fixes. That's the thing about this Mansfield book. It's had one little like stitch done to the bottom of the spine, but since 1814 it's never been touched. So the condition is amazing and it is cardboard for a cover and paper for a spine. It's just, it's, it's really something. But, um, but a lot of these, uh, these women authors uh, are, they did some really interesting covers instead of just having the, the publishers the regular publisher bindings, you know, so they did some things that actually have color in them and so forth. 
were you going to ask Brian? Was it, was it Embry or Brian? So. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. You want to hear this? Here's the two computers. Okay. I'm going to. <laughs> okay. So in the exceptional literature collection of Theodore Baum was, if any of you in the room are familiar, there was recently this big auction where the. Um, the 1818 uh, edition of Frankenstein that was in original boards and completely untouched. Um, amazing. And it will go down in history as the most money ever uh, paid for a female author, a book written by a female author. I have bragging rights for bidding, okay? So here's, okay, <laughs> Embry's eyes, I see her. So Ed's bidding for me, right? So, so I had, and I'm not looking at him, but I've got the, I'm looking at the auctioneer, but I have Ed's sound on, right? And I'm intentionally not looking at him, but I'm, I'm nodding when I'm telling him to bid, right? So he, so he can see me. And then all of a sudden he's going, Bev, Bev, <laughs> like, Bev. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> so it went for, what was it, a million, what was it? A million what? Yeah, I, yeah. So, it's that that was the one that got away. But, but I'm not. I don't have remorse. <laughs> I was kind of like, oh man, I was pretty close to that. <laughs> oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that was Barbara. Um, do you? I know, I haven't gotten into diaries and that kind of thing. There, with some, I sort of fell in love at one point with George Eliot, so I have a fairly complete George Eliot. In most cases, I was collecting um, to be able to display the different publishing practices so that I'd have different assortment, but then I kind of went down the let's get George Eliot stuff because I started um, learning so much about her business practices. And I do have some, I have several letters of hers and letters to her publisher. And um, they're almost impossible to read, but I, <laughs> but in, in some cases they've been translated for me. Um, but, but I haven't really gotten into the, the diaries, but that's an interesting thing to think about to, you know, because it's, um, it's almost like that, what is that, um, uh, so many degrees from, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's just the connections are everywhere, so I just, it's fascinating. Is that good? Oh, yes. Excuse me, I'm sorry, what advice did you give to Okay. Um, subscribe to a magazine called Fine Books and Collections, and they have a a, a collegiate collectors. Can you can you hear me? They have a collegiate um, collectors contest, and in those oh, oh sorry in those. Um, in those contests, I learned a lot because 
there are so many college students with no budget who collect the most interesting assortment of things. And then there are a couple of other, um, a couple of other booksellers who um, have like the, like Honey and Wax has the contest for under 30 or something like that, book collectors. And you can kind of get ideas um, just by seeing what other people do and reading about what other people do. And they can learn how to do it. Um, there's so many things that can be collected in a very inexpensive way. Um, and the, the other kind of advice I give is don't just get stuff off the internet. Call the bookseller, talk to them, learn from them, um, ask them for a discount. Um, you know, to, um, are you booksellers? <laughs> no, no. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, excuse me, Brian. Oh, yeah, she was pointing at you. Yeah, no, but I mean, that's, but it's a way to, to kind of get to know. When I first started, I would um, call the bookseller, tell them what I was interested in, and ask them if they would help me. <laughs> and that, and that, I ended up making a lot of friends and discovering how smart booksellers are. I mean, they really are knowledgeable. And um, it's, it's amazing. And they're honest, beyond belief honest. So <laughs> that's helpful. Not by accident. Is the poster for the inaugural Ken Rendell lecture feature the Kelmscott Chaucer? Oh. And maybe you could just tell us about your Kelmscott Chaucer as a final coda. Okay, I I got my Kelmscott Chaucer by, because it's not Victorian. It is Victorian. It's Morris. It's late. It's the last thing he did. It's the culmination of all his work. I, um, I don't usually, I actually really, really enjoy my ugly books. And I didn't have very much arts and crafts period work at all. I wasn't into bindings and illustrations and I know very little about all of that. And I saw in a Peter Harrington catalog a Kelmscott Chaucer and it's had some kind of funny verbiage about how the binding, like it wasn't original. It was I didn't know what it was, so I wrote a little, wrote him a little note, and um, he said, "Send me your phone number." <laughs> and because anyway, so he called me, and um, and so I asked him about it, and they they had uh, gotten the the book in boards, and it was falling apart. The inside is absolutely flawless. It's beautiful, and. Um, what they did was rebind it in pigskin because there were originally 20-something that were bound in pigskin and the rest were all. Um, so I don't know its provenance. That's the one thing that drives me crazy because I try to dig in and find where, where things have been and, and that kind of thing. But um, I can still, I still have a chance to, to look for it. <laughs> Now you have the Kelmscott Chaucer so. and a poster with Kelmscott Chaucer. Please join me in thanking Beverly Rogers for being our inaugural. Lecture.